This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. This week's episode is a little different than usual, and that's because I have a very special treat to share with you. It's a clip from another Forbes podcast called Listed, a show hosted by two sharp and humorous Forbes reporters by the names of Abe Brown and Maggie McGrath. Abe and Maggie invited me to join them for a special mini-sode back in December. And I'm going to play a part of our conversation for you so you can get a taste of their whip-smart, irreverent commentary on the Forbes list makers, or in my case, non-list makers. But first, I hope you'll enjoy listening to my interview with a special guest, someone who's worked with Forbes for years before he retired, Richard Snow. Richard Snow is the former editor-in-chief of American Heritage, which we own for decades, and author of several books. We're going to talk about his most recent one, called Disney's Land, Walt Disney, and the invention of the amusement park that changed the world. People don't realize that back in the early 1950s, Amusement parks had terrible reputations in America. They were filthy. The games were rigged. They cheated people. Hardly anyone wanted to go there. And when you left, you had lousy food, a lousy experience. People thought Disney was crazy. But what this book describes is how Disney conceived of the modern amusement park. All the rides in that first Disneyland were invented by Disney, virtually all of them. He laid out the park in a very careful way. Each page of this well-written book will have you scratching your head. How could one man be so creative and tenacious? Every step of the way, critics fought him. And by the time the park opened in the summer of 1955, Disney itself was on the verge of financial ruin. Walt Disney had even borrowed money from one of his executives to help keep this project going and get it launched. And the launch itself was something of a disaster. Nonetheless, Walt Disney shows that the road of the entrepreneur is never a smooth one. But by golly, when he ultimately succeeds, all of us, and this includes billions of people around the world, benefit from it. Our special guest today is Richard Snow. Richard, uh, welcome here. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) Well, Richard Snow has one of the best books that came out of 2019 going into 2020. It's called Disney's Land. Walt Disney and the Invention of the Amusement Park that Changed the World. These days, amusement parks are everywhere. Disney itself has parks at six sites. We take them for granted. But Richard's delightful, well-written, fascinating book shows how radical the original Disneyland was. We utterly underappreciate the scope and scale of Walt Disney's breathtakingly ambitious and innovative creation. Only a dogged genius could have done it. Not only did Disneyland set off enormous changes in entertainment, but also affected, positively, the manners, culture, and in recent years, even the architecture of the nation. Richard Snow is uniquely qualified to tell this amazing and inspiring tale. He's written a number of highly acclaimed and award-winning books on various aspects of American history, as well as hundreds of articles. He has penned historical novels. He did a screenplay about Coney Island for a PBS documentary and even penned a narrative poem. He was the longtime editor of the iconic American Heritage magazine, which Forbes owned for some 30 years. You'll find his distinctive writing style witty, informative, 
and wonderfully readable. He has a, you know, he knows how to turn a phrase. Richard, let's begin by having you describe your youthful visit to Disneyland and its powerful impact on you, particularly Main Street. Oh, yes, indeed. I, um, I was, uh, I was uh, born in 1947, so I was kind of the— Great year for humankind. <laughs> I, I, I think a high watermark of Western civilization. And I was—so um, I was the prime target for Disney during the long run-up to the opening of the park. He uh, sold ABC a show, which he didn't call The Wonderful World of Disney or An Hour with Walt. He called it simply Disneyland and— it was basically, uh, you know, you get 10 minutes of Donald Duck and then 40 minutes of uh, what were plain advertisements for this park that was taking shape. And it had just the hypnotic influence on me that the parents in those years were worrying television was having on their children. I never missed a show. And I, uh, when I was uh, 12, I wheedled my parents into sending me out to the West Coast where my aunt and uncle lived. And... They took me to Disneyland in, in 1959, and I certainly had high expectations. Uh, they were met and surpassed. They, they gave me a wonderful day there. I had the run of the whole park. And that and, was one of the things about Disneyland is parents could trust leaving their kids on the loose. That was very much part of Disney's plan. He wanted He wanted kids to be able to roam free, and just as important, he wanted – adults to enjoy themselves. And at one point he, he said, I think more adults are going to come here than children. And that has sort of been the, uh, it's like uh, two thirds to one third uh, right on to this day. Anyway, this child was, uh, I, you know, I went on the teacups and I went on Dumbo the Flying Elephant and the Jungle Cruise. I liked it all. But Right at the end, when we were moving, when we're leaving, you uh, you get to Disneyland and leave it by what Walt Disney called Main Street, which was his embellishments on what a small town, small city commercial block would have looked like at the turn of the century, but much enhanced and embellished with playful architectural details and stuff, but all very intelligently done and drawn from uh, uh, done with great scholarship and. I remember sitting there uh, as the dust came down, the lights came on, and a horse car clopped past, and I thought, I want to stay in this place forever. And in a sense, I did. It got me interested in American history. I was uh, subsequently fortunate enough to land, while I was uh, still in college, a job at American Heritage. I was even more fortunate when uh, the Forbes company bought it and kept it handsomely afloat for years. And so basically that trip to Disneyland has put uh, bread on my table all my life. So let's but, go to uh, Walt Disney's background. He was born in 1901. You describe him in the book, uh, have possessing a watchmaker's precision, an artist's conviction, and the recklessness of a riverboat gambler. Let's start with his childhood, especially the impact of railroads. Well, yes, he, um, he had a he had a he had a rough childhood. He uh his his father had a curious blend of uh, socialism and a grim cotton mather Calvinism. Uh, he started as a farmer, but he felt that fertilizing your field was like giving gin to an alcoholic. So 
he wouldn't, and with the predictable result that they moved into the city, bought a paper route, and Disney at the age of uh, nine or ten would get up at three in the morning and go along these snow-covered streets in the winter delivering papers, and he said that sometimes he'd, he'd... He'd, he'd get on a porch where toys had been left out. His father didn't let him have toys. And he'd play with them before he had to go back to the root. And I do think that uh, what charges the best of Disney's cartoons is that combination of peril and comfort. He, 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 knew, how to, he knew how to convey that because he'd lived it. And a job he liked much better than delivering papers was uh, as a candy butcher who was a guy who moved up and down the aisle selling uh, smokes and candy bars and sandwiches on the train. He got to wear a uniform, and from a very early age, he was utterly in love with the railroad. And as he said, he ate up all the profits, and his father pulled him off off the train. But he never got trains out of his blood, and uh, of all the different creation myths that surround Disneyland, uh, certainly one of the most um, persuasive of them is that it was all inspired at the beginning by his love of steam railroading. And uh, he went to art school, and but like many entrepreneurs, he had a setbacks. He went bankrupt in 1923. Oh, yes. 22 years old, recovered from that, but then he had a terrible experience. He invented a character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was a a great big hit. And um, it established him. It was very popular. And then as now the business was all in New York, he went from the West Coast where his studio was to ask for a higher cut of the profits on his Oswald films. And instead, the hard-handed guy in charge said, no, nah, we're going to cut your profits by a third. And Disney said, well, I'll take Oswald and go somewhere else. And the guy said, oh, the hell you will. You signed this. I own Oswald. It was stolen from him. Just like that. He had nothing. And he went, uh, he take, took a famous disconsolate rail trip back across the country to the West Coast with his wife Lillian. And he was sketching and sketching and sketching. And he, uh, and he came up with, well, I've done a funny rabbit. Maybe I'll try a funny mouse. And he roughed out the mouse and showed it to Lillian, said he wanted to call it Mortimer Mouse. And Lillian was what was generally horrified by the trip itself, but certainly thought that was a, that name was the kiss of death. It sounded fussy and highfalutin. Give him a friendlier name. And Disney lit on Mickey. And within a decade, uh, the, the gossip columnist Hedda Hopper could write that Mickey Mouse was the leading Hollywood personality. It shows a touch of genius. Who would have thought taking a rodent? And, and, you know, <laughs> yes. Mice are not attractive creatures <laughs> no. like rabbits. No. And uh, by circular drawing, made him very friendly. Exactly. Yes. He, the, he, Mickey is in, composed entirely of circles, which are soft and suggest fecundity. So uh, in his early forms, he was much more rodent-like. It's interesting to watch the first Mickey Mouse cartoons. He's... He's kind of a scruffy reprobate. He knocks back beers. He smokes cigarettes. He dances lasciviously with Minnie. There, I mean, it's it's really strange. But as the uh, as the years go by, he softened until he 
became a until he actually sort of lost all personality and became sort of a just a papal overseer of all the Disney enterprises. But um, but when he was uh, when, when he was at his peak in the uh, late 20s, 30s, early 40s, he he he. He was the uh, foundation on which all the other Disney enterprises were built. But uh, alluding to something you said earlier, uh, you said in the book, uh, something of Disney's childhood experience charges the best of Disney's cartoons and imparts the underlying toughness that separates them from even their most successful rivals. It's why it's what fascinates children about them. There is real menace, real danger, along with the comedy. Yes, and I and I very much believe that children, um, for the most part, aren't scared of being scared. You don't see too much of uh, that in the first Disneyland rides. Well, there's a scary witch, but um, but on the other hand, Mister Toad's wild ride, where he steals his uh, his Edwardian motor car and drives through the streets of London, ends up with Toad dead and in hell, which is <laughs> which certainly surprised. My 12-year-old self. (laughs) But again, uh, Disney pushing uh, the envelope. Yes. After uh, World War II, Hollywood hated the rise of television. They saw it as a threat and indeed shut down most of the movie houses in the country because people before World War II would go to the movies four or five nights a week. Yes. And TV killed it. And Warner Brothers, as you mentioned in the book, banned television from uh, their studios. Nor would they show them in their in their movies. You had a a rich person's living room, no television in it. <laughs> and and uh, Disney made the point: the only Hollywood personage says, "Let's bring Hollywood to the TV," which is what happened. Yes. Let's get the the origins of uh, Disneyland. Uh, Disney had been uh, devastated by a strike of his animators before World War II, and never got over it. And then after the war, he went in for a brief while of personal depression, uh, thinking, uh, what do we do next? And uh, he was always glomming onto this idea of a theme park, amusement park. We call them theme parks now. And uh, at the time, people have no idea today. uh, Amusement parks were then, after World War II, disreputable, dirty. the, The games were crooked. The food was terrible. There was no real maintenance. And, and, and his wife said to Disney, why would you want to get involved in an amusement park? They're so dirty and not fun at all for grownups. And his brother Roy called it one of Walt's screwy ideas. Well, just one of his screwy ideas. Right? So uh, walk us through, especially the pivotal. First was Knott's Farm, where at least they had one ride right. Yes. Uh-huh. But then the pivotal railroad fair in Chicago, when especially their ancillary exhibits he saw a theme he saw something that just fired his imagination that's that's ab- yes that's absolutely true he um in the late 40s just a yeah. little background Walt was interested in trains as a hobby so he went out there yes he was depressed and by golly this revived him yes it was uh it was something put on by uh the uh, American uh, the American railroad industry right right after the end of the war where um it was just the right time for Disney to go see. It was in Chicago. It was done on a very grand scale. It was, uh, you know, there'd be a history of transportation starting with the uh, first wood burners, and they'd all go back and forth on a massive stage. And Disney, Disney at that time, all aside from his love of 
trains, he was sick of everything. He'd done everything he felt he could. He he was tired of animation. He he brought it from a coarse novelty to a hugely successful commercial art form. He, as Steve said, he'd been almost permanently embittered by his studio strike. And he'd, he'd been through World War II, where he'd spent four years making movies for the government with titles like Four Methods of Flush Riveting. And he was just sick of it when his uh, one of the few close friends he had on his staff, uh, who was also a, who was also a trained buff, said, come on, Walt, let's go to the Chicago Railroad Fair. And he was enchanted by it. First of all, they, uh, the, 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 he and his friend Ward Kimball, they, uh, when the uh, head of the fair found they were there, he let them drive the locomotives. But what really stuck with Walt was not even seeing this wonderful pageant of American motive power, but they had set up historic scenes, uh, main, Chicago's main station in 1880, uh, a narrow-gauge uh, mining train which went through an 1870s town where you know food was served to you by people with bandanas and uh new orleans at the turn of the century in other words it prefigured in a sort of way exactly the experience that disney was beginning to think he wanted to expand into he he was done with two dimensions now you know people had sat and watched his movies now he was looking towards something where people would be part of the action. And he came back from the railroad fair right on the, on the, on the train coming back uh, west. He uh, started uh, sketching out ideas for what he at first called Mickey Mouse Land, but then decided that sounded a little, a little too juvenile and limiting. And uh, a year or two later, he was uh, talking about Disneyland. Now, uh, the financing which, uh, like uh, Snow White before in the late 30s, financing of uh, Disneyland nearly wrecked Disney oh. personally and the companies. And uh, he knew of people's skepticism. His brother Roy said Junior's got his hand in the cookie jar <laughs> when uh, Disney decided instead of going through the regular Disney company, he'd have to set up another company because the corporation, which is then a publicly held company, would never go along with it. So he yes. put a, start an outside company. You describe he hocked his insurance, he ho- sold his summer home, <laughs> and uh, started pouring money into this. Yes, and his his uh, his brother Roy wouldn't talk to him about it for a while, and finally he went to a banker friend of his who knew Disney and said, "Hey, you know, has uh, has Walt been after you for a loan?" And the banker said. Yeah, he has, Roy, and you know what? I gave it to him. And then Roy gradually discovered that the wall had hocked his life insurance and that uh, was already deep in debt. And he had managed so far to buy uh, 160 acres of farmland in a, in a backwater town of Anaheim, which, which Americans had heard of only because it was a laugh line on the uh, Benny comedy radio hour. Every so often there'd be an announcement of trains leaving for Anaheim and Cucamonga, meaning two podunk towns that were nowhere. And uh, it was a, but he was able to get the land he needed and he had spent $800,000 on that. Roy was not at all glad to 
to learn. But by this time, Roy understood that uh, all of his business rested on Walt's imagination. He he understood that. And at some point in the end, he, he gave in. We we have to do this together. But, you know, that was great. But how to do it together, how to get money. And Disney had been being courted by television for years and years. They all wanted Disney shows. And Disney, in 1936, he broke with Universal because they wanted him to sell television rights to his cartoons. This was in a time when there were perhaps 1,100 television receivers in the world. But Disney saw which way things were going and he wouldn't let go of it. So he had a huge, uh, he had a huge archive that television badly wanted. And he said, all right, I'll go to a television station and they'll, I'll, I'll give them a show and they'll pay for my park. And he went to first to, to the big stations, uh, NBC and CBS, and they all wanted the show, but they wanted nothing to do with an amusement park. Why get involved in this squalid catch penny business? So, so it was no dice. So as a last resort, he went to ABC, which was very much straggling or a runner-up. It was called the Almost Broadcasting Company, <laughs> that, that, ABC. That, yes, that's what, yeah. That, 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 and, and the butt of bad jokes. You cite one joke, uh, <laughs> if, uh, we, if the U.S. gets bombed, go to ABC because they've never had a hit. Yeah, <laughs> that was how ABC was viewed in the industry. And the head of that, a man named Leonard Goldenson, realized the— uh, he needed Disney if he wanted to advance at all, uh, as much as Disney needed him. And they struck a deal. And Disney would give the show. It was an hour-long show. And then, when the park opened, it would be covered in the largest live television broadcast ever mounted at that time, which was an enormous undertaking and which absolutely locked them into an opening date of July 17th. So... Disney had exactly a year to build his park. And what he'd seen in Chicago, uh, as you point out in your book, was carefully landscaped. It was a narrative. And that's what he decided you needed for a park. Yes, yes. And he, and even he even worked this out to somewhat to his wife's dismay on uh, with a beautiful little narrow gauge, very small a, a steam railroad he built around the home in Homely Hills, he'd actually built the home to accommodate the railroad. And it uh, was a perfect little model of a American steam locomotive. It could pull people on tiny boxcars. But it he'd also worked out the landscaping so that you would go from one mood, as it were, to another, that that, that it wasn't just a trip around Disney's house. It It was a narrative. There was a scary tunnel. There was a there was a trestle there. The, it was a ride with a story. It was a ride with a story, and the story was told largely through landscaping, which uh, took a very, very strong hold on him and was crucial to the development of his park. Well, this gets to the miracle of uh, his concept and getting it done. There are no off-shelf rides. He had to create every single one, the only exception being the carousels, which he changed anyway. yes. And again, everything in that park had to be invented. Inventing one ride is difficult enough, but doing a whole a range was awesome in itself. Well, no one had ever done anything like this. And consequently, when he was trying to sell it, no one understood it. As, as amusement parks had uh, ah, they'd done well at the turn of the century, pretty well in the 20s. Then 
came the Depression, no paint, no maintenance, then a lot of battering during the war years until just at the time uh, Disney was planning to build one, uh, the amusement park had sunk to a nadir and it was o- uh, only a slightly more respectable uh, business than a bordello. So he had to he had to not only make up everything out of whole cloth, but he had to sell people on the idea that this was a project worth doing. And uh, towed cars, uh, the teacups, Dumbo, they all had terrific engineering problems. Everything was simply made up and extemporized. Nobody had had a Dumbo the Flying Elephant ride before. The amusement parks had always had what they called dark rides, where a car fizzes through a tunnel and a cardboard skeleton lights up. But Disney wanted his rides to tell stories. So with the Peter Pan ride, these little galleons were lifted by an overhead tramway and circle around London and then go out across the sea to Neverland. I mean, this was this was something that um, no entrepreneur had had dreamed of. But beyond that, his quest for detail, which explains, I think, a great deal of the success of the park. He was absolutely strict that it be totally accurate. Well, take the uh, Jungle Cruise, yes. putting in a sound system for, for the animal. A, a very elaborate, a very elaborate sound system. They, uh, the, it was all photoelectric cells and, uh, and and spools of tape that would activate as the boats passed by, so the animal would roar at the right point. And again, Disney's obsession with the tail, he had as background noise, he had jungles recorded, jungle sounds recorded in the daytime and at nighttime. So after the sun went down, you'd be hearing different birds quacking at you. And, and uh, that was a very, that was a very popular ride and it enjoyed the heroic distinction of being the only one that didn't break down on opening day. One of the challenges uh, was Getting the water to stay in the rivers. Well, yes. See, the right everything was difficult. They had a, a year to build it. Jack and Bill Evans, who had uh, done the landscaping for Disney's train in his home, and he hired them to do that. And that was quite a challenge because the the jungle, which had to go up in a year, had to look like it had been there since the last ice age received. Well, this is uh, something very very interesting. Is uh, people think of jungle as lush and, and rich with <laughs> yeah. a plant. And where I, in the real world, jungle architecture is pretty boring. That's exactly that's what the brothers said. We bring the jungles, and they are boring. So they, uh, so basically, they they got a whole melange of different trees. They, uh, the freeways uh, that the Autopia celebrated were creeping toward Orlando, and uh, they would drive ahead of them and buy up trees before the bulldozers could get them. There's something, uh, part, of, part of the improvisation is they needed grown trees for the whole park. Yes. For the jungle. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, the, 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 the normal sellers ran out of them. Yeah. So you describe how they'd go to people's homes and say, can we uh, they, take your tree they, out for a certain amount they, of money? <laughs> and then with the freeways, when California's building these like 405 and these yeah. freeways, and they said, instead of bulldozing down the trees, let us come in. We'll take them out for 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 you. Yeah, well, they, we'll, we'll get rid of them. And they, they got hundreds of trees that way. And, and say once uh, they saw a magnificent banyan tree in somebody's yard, uh, Harper Goff, who was was a scout with great trepidation, went to the doorbell and asked the man if he'd part with his banyan tree. And the man said, 
What, that ugly old bastard? Yeah, take her away. I'm sick of looking at her. So sometimes they got lucky. <laughs> and uh, they, they also, and they also used whenever they could the orange trees that had been there, which were for the first few years quite a pain in the neck because squads of people had to go through the jungle before the ride opened plucking the oranges off so you wouldn't uh, be alarmed by seeing an orange uh, suddenly there in the Mekong Delta. One of the other uh, numerous improvisations was uh, when they had undesirable plants grow, uh, like barnyard grass and stuff, oh, yeah. undesirable. <laughs> they decided, well, if we'll put exotic names on it and people will think it's for real. All weeds. That was, that was when everything, all the money had run out. They, 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 they had no more, and they still had these hillsides of weeds. And that, that was Disney. He said, wait, these all have fancy Latin names. Put little plaques on them, and people would think they're getting educated. And as far as I know, nobody tumbled to it. They, they, they stayed there until they could afford to replace them. Um, your book describes many, and you've mentioned some of them, many of the amazing people that Disney hired. And uh, this gets to one of the great intangibles of great leadership. Is one way or the other, the right people get hired. And uh, one of them uh, you talk about is Ruth Shellhorn, who is a really describe her as a master of horticultural stagecraft. Describe her, her, her role. Yes. Disney, um, one of the many parts of his brilliance was he, he hired wonderfully, always. He was not a warm boss. He tended not to have close friends among his high executives, and he'd get furious if they told him they couldn't do something. But he was always open to suggestion, and he didn't mind if they tried something and it didn't work. And he just had an eye, and he when the the Evans brothers uh, were very effective at building the jungle, but he was less satisfied in the way they were that they were doing the the plantings and the the trees and the rest of the park. And he came upon a really remarkable woman named Ruth Shellhorn, who had uh, wanted to be a landscape architect from the time she was fifteen, and you know this is in the twenties, and uh, her her thirties and her parents didn't say, don't be ridiculous, take home economics. So uh, they actually uh, sold their house so she could go to landscape architecture school. And she became extremely successful. And she was uh, much subtler in, in, in the placement of greenery. Uh, she put it subliminal signals. She just didn't see plants. She saw it as conveying something. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that as you were going from the, Main Street into the Old West, the landscape should get drier, the trees more gnarled and stunted. Also, uh, Disney was always eager to lead people on. He didn't want people to stand by. He always wanted them to see something that would draw them along. He called that weenies because he uh, had the rather undignified phrase that park people are discouraged from using, but uh, what that came from was that he had the uh, habit of coming home from work and eating a raw frankfurter and taking another one and for his dog, Duchess, and walking around the house dropping pieces of it, and Duchess would keep chasing after the morsels. And that's what, so he called weenies would be the thing that you saw that went made you want to go on to the next thing. So the steam locomotive will pull you into Main Street and then on Main Street, it would end with the Sleeping Beauty Castle that uh, that that was uh, that well, this now is 
familiar as the Eiffel Tower to the, to the whole world. But uh, but he didn't want it just to be a straight avenue with the castle looming at the end of it. He he wanted the planting so that as you walk toward it, you would see a glimpse of rampart and then an enticing tower. I mean, a sort of botanical striptease that that, 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 that would draw you along. And Ruth Shellhorn was perfect at that. And, and the park to this day bears her imprint. She had a, she had a hard job. She was, uh, it was really a boy's network there. And here was this young woman telling, um, telling the Evans brothers that they planted their trees in the long, wrong place. She, she said she got used to eating lunch alone, but Disney had absolute confidence in her and, uh, she had a, she had a hard time, but she stuck it out. And the, uh, Part of what makes Disneyland unique until this day is the the artful way in which she kept placed plantings to keep you interested. Um, among other things, uh, you mentioned a fellow named Van Arsdale, France, and personnel, which in most parks were just college kids. Yeah, you hired kids. college kids to run the Tilda Whirl and, and uh, designed a unique training program, including the nomenclature. Customers were guests. Audiences, not crowds. Hosts and hostesses. Describe that and how ultimately, as you go on in the book, permeated America. Oh, it, cer- it certainly did. Yeah, Disney realized early on that, you know, if he's going to build this fantastic, magical city-state, you know, he couldn't have a bunch of on-and-off sullen college students uh, running the rides. He He had to have a workforce that reflected the feelings of courtesy and festivity that he hoped would be there. And he lucked into a man named Van Arsdale, France, who'd, uh, who'd train line workers on uh, warplanes in World War II. He was, used to, he was used to inculcating people. And Disney hired him to train a workforce. And France thought it through and decided that you had to have a whole a whole new vocabulary. They they weren't customers. These were your guests. The rides weren't just rides. That suggests the Tilt-A-Whirl. These rides were attractions. And everything was gentled down and, and slightly euphemized. And that has spread in our lifetimes at, at my supermarket, the uh, when I'm next in line, the woman at the cash register says, following guest, please. This this is uh this this is t- very much taken over our culture, and they always had to be bright, friendly, eager to chat, and the pr- the program worked awfully well. It's been uh it's been spread entirely through our corporate culture now. So uh, getting to uh, the opening day, July seventeenth, nineteen fifty five, they had to open it not only because of the TV, but because of the mountains of debt that they had. Oh, yes. If they couldn't get a summer season, it was over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they and they were working right down to the last minute. Disney was having to make tough choices. Everything worked against him toward the end. There were biblical downpours of rain. There, um, the unions came in. <laughs> yeah, there were the, the helpful advent of the unions. They, there was a plumber's strike and uh, he had to choose between installing drinking fountains and restrooms and... He said, uh, put in the restrooms. People can drink Pepsi-Cola, but they can't pee in the street. And then when the television crews moved in, there were actual 
fistfights between the workmen who were trying to get finished and the the crews who were installing well, 30 cameras that had been trucked in from all across the country. Uh, one of them, <laughs> one of the workmen said to one of the television guys, don't worry, you'll have lots of action to film. We'll be pouring concrete. And, and they damn near were when Disney took his final tour of the park at midnight on July 17th before opening day. The asphalt still hadn't been laid on Main Street. So he went to sleep to the sound of the that fresh asphalt being poured right out of his window. It came that close. Opening day, as you point out in the book, 90 million people tuned in. Probably the biggest TV show proportionately of population in history. Oh, even, even years afterwards, it was more people watched it in the final episode of MASH or even the moonwalk. It's sort of fun to watch it. It's all available on YouTube. And I mean, it's a sort of eerie to see one of the hosts be called Ronnie and the very young Ronald Reagan lopes down the platform. Well, the main <laughs> host was Art Linkletter, Art Linkletter, who was then the most famous entertainer. And it's a tremendous tribute to the people who were jimming around these cameras that were set in tubs of smoking dry ice to keep them from burning out. So the show goes smoothly and uh, certainly makes you want to go to Disneyland, certainly made me want to go to Disneyland. But um, behind the cameras, everybody, everybody who was there. It was a disaster. Yeah, they re referred to it forever as Black Sunday. They, well, the, as you point out, the crowds are too big. Every ride but one broke down. Yes. The toilets didn't work. <laughs> the food ran out. Uh, yeah, the food ran out almost at noon. And then uh, uh, and um, and that that newly laid asphalt sucked the shoes off the women's feet as they were walking down Main Street. And um, uh, poor Walt himself was seen running an emergency supply of toilet paper to one of the one of the restrooms. And so the dictated. press coverage was dreadful. It was awful. Well, right from the start, they, they, they'd invited 11,000 people and possibly as many as 40,000 showed up. That, this, uh, that, 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 that year of the show had, uh, had done its work. There were, that there were, uh, tens of thousands of counterfeit tickets were printed. Some, uh, entrepreneurs had put up ladders on the far end of the park and charged people $5 a pop to climb up and drop down inside. Every, everybody agreed it was uh, absolutely miserable. What is astonishing is what Disney did in the aftermath. First, the day after, people still came paying customers yes. this time so they get some money in. But even though, as you say in the book, only 80% of the work had been done, Disney's team, getting to that culture he created, didn't mind hard work. They would make this Work. That's right. And here was Disney uh, uh, showing a, a terrific resilience. So uh, he, he came once or twice in his life close to having a breakdown. But when, when the hammers were really put to him, he always rose to the occasion. And he started an intense publicity campaign and a very frank one. He, he, he took small numbers of the press around and showed them here's what went wrong and here's why it's not going to go wrong again. And yes, instead of fighting the press, he decided to woo them. Yes. And as things got better, see, here's what we're doing. Yes. Try to bring them on his side. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and admitting that, it, admitting that it had been an awful mess as opposed to trying to pretend that they misunderstood it. And I think uh, it was just two months after opening, the millionth visitor stepped in. And at that time, I mean, there were still 
an awful lot to do. But by that time, it was clear that this wasn't going away and that, 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 that it was uh, that, that it was going they to would survive and thrive and would make quite a stamp on the public psyche forever after. One thing uh, closing you did get right uh, was uh, what was called the Mickey Mouse Club. Huge yes. success on TV. And uh, you point out in the book, yeah, millions of kids. But in bars, at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. people would come in, have a few pops in the bar, watch the Mickey Mouse Club and sing the Mickey and Mouse Club song. Yes. And step, yeah, Bill Walsh, again, the producer, was astounded. He was in a, some dive near Grand Central Station and suddenly all these guys had set down their drinks and they were standing up with their hands over their hearts and singing, see you real soon. Uh, it, it uh, well, like Disneyland itself, it had a, it had a catch that, 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 uh, Healed to every age. And uh, sadly, human nature being what it is, Disney's success, lawsuits. Oh, yes. A probium. Uh, the culture mavens, such as they were, a lot of them just ripped him apart. Oh, that started very early. Uh, somebody in the Nation magazine said that Disneyland was the heart of darkness where Disney travics and trinkets and evil. Um, somebody called it the perfect small model of a perfect fascist state. Uh, that there, was a, there was the idea that uh, Disney was playing a trick on them, that, that, that he was trying to make them think the world was like this, and hence it was false and meretricious. But it aroused, as, any, as anything radical, even in a kindly way like this, uh, it aroused fierce uh, resistance. And um, on the other hand, it, it was quite a surprise when James Rouse gave the... Uh, the noted uh, architect. Yes. He gave an annual uh, speech to a group of architects in which... He said, I'm going to surprise some of you with this, but I think the single most successful piece of urban design in the last half century is Disneyland. It so perfectly does what it sets out to do that anyone can learn from it. And people have begun to learn from it. What's not quite known now that, again, the, the, that, that, that stretch of Main Street that so enchanted me, uh, I, w I was not alone. And... People began to come back from there again saying, you know, this this old general store, this department store, this uh, why this is just like the ones in Disneyland. This this um and it started a downtown revival that continues to this day. Richard Snow, thank you very much. The book's called Disney's Land, well well worth a read. And cheaper than going to Disneyland. Oh, uh, by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Steve. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Snow about that extraordinary man, Walt Disney, and his invention, Disneyland. The book is in stores now and online. It's called Disney's Land. Well worth reading. Even if you visited Disneyland or Disney World or one of the other global parks, you're going to find this book more thrilling, more entertaining than the rides themselves. And now a treat, my special Listen of the Week, which is called Listed. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download or stream your favorite podcast content. Listed is all about Forbes' signature lists. And each week, co-hosts Abe Brown and Maggie McGrath 
sit down with different listologists. That is, members of Forbes' teams of intrepid reporters who meticulously track the lives of the rich and powerful and interesting. Some of the famous figures already discussed on the podcast by these expert listologists include Kanye West, Mackenzie Bezos, and George Lucas. Listed is now in its second season, and back in December, I was invited by Abe and Maggie to be their guest for a very special mini-sode. I am a Forbes reporter, after all, and they asked me to share some of my best tips for conducting great interviews. Then we ran through some of the show's segments, which, as you'll hear, offer irreverent commentary on the people on the Forbes list, or in my case, not on them. But I keep trying. Someday, by golly, I'll make that list. But now, even if I'm not on it, you're going to enjoy this segment. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Doing great. Thanks Thank for you. joining us on Listed. If you could pick any list to go on, which one would it be? Top earning DJs? I am realized long ago that is not my thing. I'll, <laughs> I'll let others provide the music. I'll listen to it. <laughs> well, Steve, you've also, in your career, had a lot of opportunity to talk to the people who appear on our lists. And we want to know a little bit more about how you talk, how you prepare to talk to the World's Rich and Powerful. This is something that Maggie and I have done a little bit of. You've done so much more of it. How do you prep before talking to these people? You do it like you would a final exam. You examine uh, most pieces about them, interviews they've given, books they might have written, interviews online, and then you figure out what is the theme that you're going for, what are you uh, looking for, what do you hope to get from it, and then you recognize as soon as the interview begins, it'll take a course of its own. And if you've uh, prepped it right, you can go from subject to subject or a go-off course that you had planned. But as Mag Margaret Thatcher said, if you know your brief, uh, you can easily do that. And the uh, key thing is to get them to feel comfortable talking. So, Steve, uh, have, you, did you ever, have you ever had an interview in which you felt overmatched by the other person on the other end? At the beginning of my career, yes, because they knew more than I did. <laughs> and that's how you uh, painfully learn. <laughs> and, uh, and many of these people, you hope they know more than you. You're talking to a physician. I talked to Dr. Oz the other day and a uh, heart surgeon, noted heart surgeon, also a big TV personality. But I hope he knows more about medicine than I do. So, uh, so you shouldn't go into an interview being inhibited by the fact that the person on the other end knows more than you, what you're going in for, unless you're playing the gotcha game, is uh, you're trying to get information from them or insights from them that people might be interested in, not your peers. One of the dangers is you try to appeal to your peers, what uh, the people you hang around with, what would they think? That's not maybe the audience you uh, should be aiming at. Do you have an interview you are most proud of? I have interviews that have been uh, nerve-wracking prepping for. Uh, people like Eva Longoria or uh, Kim Kardashian, people like that. You, uh, you wonder how it's going to go. Chelsea Handler, what would she do? Uh, these were mostly at uh, our women's conferences. 
but uh, you are always going in with trepidation. And the worst thing you can do with an interview, unless it's a you know thirty second quickie on you know one quick question, is uh, thinking you don't have to really prep for it. If you don't have that anxiety level, something's going to go wrong big time. Should we uh, should we move on to segments? I think so. We have lots of segments that we brainstorm just for this special crossover episode. Because we are thrilled to have you here, Steve, and... I'm really excited for this segment. It's called the Moby Dick Prize. Who is the one that got away? The person that you never got to interview but have always wanted to, and still possibly could someday. Well, can't do this one unless you uh, believe in the afterlife, but... uh... I've got a Ouija board. you want to try? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Let's see if you can deliver. Make news. But uh, would it have been Steve Jobs. We never uh, got on the right wavelength with Steve Jobs. And uh, for a variety of reasons, never worked out. And uh, even though, you know, this is one of the things you have to recognize about human nature. You take somebody like Jobs, if you took away his name and gave his personality traits to human resources department, they'd say, get rid of this person. Don't want to see him because he had all the attributes you don't want. Putting people down, stealing ideas, impossible to work with, and he gets fired from his own company before the age of 30. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and, uh, But the thing is, he painfully learned how to be an effective leader. Painfully. Do you want to set up the next segment? This segment is called Father Doesn't Know Best. And Dad, I'm not smiling because that's true. But Most you have a huge time. grin on your face. <laughs> and Steve is looking at us skeptically. Tell Steve what the segment is. So, Steve, your father, Malcolm, was famous for making Forbes what it is today. So what Abe and I wanted to know is if Malcolm hadn't become a magazine mogul, what other job would he have been good at? Well, he is one of those who could uh, go into a situation and uh, figure out how to make something out of it <laughs> and, uh, and uh, in an innovative way. And uh, he had plenty of setbacks along the way as somebody who uh, swings for the, for the fences. But uh, he was willing to try things. I mean, you take motorcycles. I think I've told you the story in the past that— uh, in the, he was in his mid-late 40s, and somebody was working with him. We had company loans in those days. Asked for a loan to buy a motorcycle. My father said, are you out of your mind? You're going to kill yourself, and I'm not going to finance your injury or your death. No. No <laughs> loan. Uh, the kid ended up buying it anyway and uh, lived nearby where we lived and uh, brought it by one weekend. My father was willing to try anything, and uh, so he tried it, and the next day he bought two of them, and then, <laughs> and then eventually, and then eventually a dealership, which didn't work out very well, but uh, <laughs> buying them wholesale. But uh, got to the point where, as he got older, he rode it more and more, and he started to commute from New Jersey. He lived about fifty miles from New York City, where we were back then. He would start commuting on a motorcycle. And then even worse, he started to drive around the streets of New York on a motorcycle. And so he had generational role reversal. <laughs> uh, you had the kids saying to the father, 
These can be dangerous. <laughs> you can hurt yourself. You know, what are you doing? And of course, he ignored it. And he had several accidents. But uh, he, he was a kind of person where if an unprecedented crisis came up or situation came up, he you could count on him to figure out, try to improvise a way. All right, Steve, this is the last one. This is called Friendly Fire. There's no such thing as friendly fire. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully this this is friendly yeah, Friendly-ish. This friendly, is friendly-ish, friendly-ish fire. Um, we've talked about some of your best tips for interviews, what makes for a good conversation, an insightful conversation. We now want to throw all of those rules out the window and ask you as many questions as we can in 30 or 60 seconds or until Abe and I run out of words. All right. Uh, Reva, can you give us a 60-second uh, clock? Okay. Reva's nodding her head. Reva, are you ready? Are you set? Okay. Go. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Favorite day of the week? Monday. Chocolate or vanilla? Both. <laughs> Last song you listened to? Um, Rolling Stones, Get No Satisfaction. <laughs> Bourbon or scotch? Uh, obviously scotch. <laughs> Favorite season? Um, spring. There's hope that the Yankees might yet win a World Series. <laughs> You're an optimist. Red wine or white wine? Red, even though uh, um, I do it because I'm told it's healthy. Now some are saying maybe it's not so healthy, but I prefer the healthy version. Cake or pie? Cake. Thanksgiving or Christmas? Christmas. Presents. Lucky number? Uh, seven. First pet? Dog. Name? Russell. And we're, and out, we're of out of time. Russell, RIP. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thank you. And uh, because you were semi nice, go Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> semi nice. Well, we can't all have Forbes family manners. This is true. This is true. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Again, you can subscribe to Listed on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 